Good afternoon, you've got living writers on WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today we head back to the archives for a conversation with David Marinus about his book, A Good American Family, The Red Scare and My Father. I'm hoping that later this year to talk with David Marinus again about his latest book, Pathlet by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe which we talk about right at the end of this program. Thanks for joining us today. Hope you enjoy. afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to have in the studio David Marinus. David, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, T. It's great to be back here. It's so great <laughs> to see you again. <laughs> Part two from yes. our, the last time you were in town um, for the, the great, the your Detroit book. Right. Once in a Great City. Once in a Great City, which yeah. is a great book. And, and it was so... Uh, good to talk with you then, and I've been so looking forward to getting to talk with you now about your 12th book, your latest yes. book, A Good American Family, The Red Scare and My Father. Um, before we get into that, though, mm -hmm. also thanks for picking today's songs, David. Um, the first song, the opening song, has a special resonance. It really does. Paul Robeson uh, was... My probably my mother's favorite. Your mother Mary. My mother Mary <laughs> Cummins Marinus, and as from the time I was a little boy, um, the the house would be full of music, and it would often be either Beethoven or Paul Robeson or Harry Belafonte, <laughs> and so all of Paul Robeson's songs are deeply etched in my childhood memories. And the, hearing this this particular song yeah. this afternoon and thinking about your father, Elliot Marinus, and how you as his son actually uncovered the story more. Like it mm -hmm. wasn't something that was a secret in your family, but um, this is what this book is really about. Your father didn't talk about no, this particular story and this, this, this painful um a challenge to him, like his Americanism. Exactly. Um, and so hearing Paul Robeson sing, I feel like, was especially evocative. It moved me more than I thought it would the moment I heard his voice. Um, you know, I, I have to say, my father was called before the House on American Activities Committee in Detroit in 1952 and uh, fired from his job at the Detroit Times. And we started five years of moving around as he was blacklisted. Um, and it was a difficult period, but I consider our family lucky. A lot of families were not just disrupted, but destroyed by that era. And and because of the strength of my mother and father, we were able to get through it and onto the other side. Um, so we all have our sorrows, and we all go through troubles. 
Um, millions of Americans less blessed than our family went through worse things. But nonetheless, I think it's a reminder of how the government can destroy lives. Um, and this was in room 740 of the federal building in Detroit. Um, and uh, when your father was subpoenaed at his place of work mm-hmm. at the press, um, at the Detroit Times, um, and it had been a grandmother who, a spy, right. <laughs> had um, come in to the House on American Activities Committee and given a list of names that she had been keeping for something like, was it eight years? Nine years. Or nine years, David? Berenice Baldwin was recruited by the FBI in 1943. She was a paid informant. She was not a disillusioned former communist or someone who wanted to get back and felt uh, repentance of some sort. She was just a paid informant. And she stayed in the Communist Party of Michigan for nine years. She rose to become the secretary of the party, meaning she had all of the names and addresses of anyone in Michigan who at any point belonged to the party. And when uh, Hueck came to Detroit, uh, that late winter, early spring of 1952. Uh, She was the star witness. Um, She came in for the cold for the first time then and named hundreds of names. Uh, The the real goal of the committee then was just to get publicity and and stir the the fears of that era um, and also to try to um, go after the communist influence in local 600 of the United Auto Workers. That was their real goal. And so my father, who was a newspaper man, and other people who were teachers and a lot of other professions were collateral damage because she named every name. And and your uncle, my Bob uncle was Cummins, another one. He was actually that so much was so much fear and so much distrust and misinformation was used even in the UAW itself. He was wasn't your uncle. Bob, he was escorted out by fellow workers from his plant. Was it was it in Flint or no? It was in or, it was in Dearborn. Or in Dearborn, and, and he uh, at times worked in the DeSoto plant in the Pontiac plants, and um, he was openly a member of the Young Communist League, and uh, yeah, some of the auto workers uh, in 1950 uh, when he was trying to talk to them about. Uh, their rights in organizing, um, said, well, you're a communist, and they carried him out of the plan and threatened to beat him up. Uh, But the more interesting story about my uncle, uh, both my uncle and my father, I should say, went to the University of Michigan. Yeah, we should have started as, there, as, right, As David? did my mother. I mean, <laughs> the University of Michigan is at the very heart of this story. And the Daily. And, and the Michigan Daily. They, all, they both wrote for the Michigan Daily. My uncle uh, was a few years older than my father. And by the way, this is my mother's brother, not my father. So they, they hadn't even met yet. Um, but my uncle's brother, I mean, my uncle, uh, my mother's brother, um, came to the Daily in 1934 same time as Arthur Miller was at the Daily and many other great writers. And he was radicalized at the University of Michigan. Um, and the day after he graduated in 1937, he and two of his classmates, Ralph Nefus and Elman Service, went to New York, took a boat across the Atlantic to France, took a train across France to the border with Spain, climbed over the Pyrenees and fought 
in the Spanish Civil War for the loyalists, the Republicans against Franco and uh, Mussolini and Hitler. He survived. Um, he was a runner, a messenger uh, for the International Brigade. And uh, Elman's service also survived. But Ralph Nefes, the third of them, was captured by Franco's troops, uh, held in a cathedral in the town of El Canis, and executed. Um, one of the most moving parts of the research for this trip, my wife and I went to Spain to, to um, trace my uncle's route. And we went to Alcanis and drove up the, the twisting roads up to the top to the cathedral and walked inside. And all of those many, many decades later, it still felt like a dungeon of death. death. It was dark and dank and the votive candles were flickering and it just felt really eerie. So my uncle survived. The International Brigade was sent home um, late in 1938. And the first week of January 1939, the University of Michigan at the Union here held a big dinner honoring Elman's service and Bob Cummins, my, my uncle. And one of the people there was an 18-year-old townie named Mary Cummins. Um, and covering it for the Michigan Daily was a senior, Elliot Marinus. Ace. Ace Marinus. And that's where my parents met. At that 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 dinner that was Civil War <laughs> dinner honoring Bob Cummins. That's an so that's, that's amazing why story. The, yeah. and the Spanish Civil War is so important to everything that follows. Not just personally with my family coming together because of that event, but because it was where all of the uh, tensions and isms of the 20th century were played out before World War II in a really important way: fascism, communism, anarchism. A liberalism, all of them were there in this incredible stew that was, you know, I think one of the most understudied important events of the 20th century. And even and after World War II and everything that happened during World War II, Spain was still left with Franco yes. for so many years. Like if like your uncle and, and other brave um, people who went over to try to stand up for freedom or to give the people a chance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're so brave. If if our country had paid more attention, I mean, Hitler was trying out. Oh, he was the Condor Legion bombs, was right. Like the, that's what Guernica is about is yes. the, the bombing of that. And and we, my wife and I, went to this village of Belchite, um in western Catalonia, and um, the church. All of there were still ruins there from World War Two from the Condor Legion, Hitler's uh, uh, bombers. Um, Yes, and and the my uncle and the few thousand American and Canadian men who went over to fight in that war um, were disparaged when they got home and called premature anti-fascists and, and hounded, you know, because a lot of them had communist ties or whatever. Um, but you know that's why they they were either called before the committee or set up on charges and what was in the Smith Act, you know, for being a communist, just for being holding that ideological perspective. Um, but they were almost universally harassed by the American government. So so your book, David, the A Good American Family, The Red Scare and My Father, it's 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 a family story, but it's a story about this country. It's a story about history yes. with World War Two, the Spanish Civil War, as as we were just talking about World War Two, definitely, um, and about the history of of uh, HUAC, like the, this these the committee that went 
around trying to whip up a, a frenzy of emotion um, against people. Like we've got the, tr- you've got hearings, like trials, uh, or what well, wasn't a trial, actually. No, the, they the, didn't have a the chance The witnesses to speak. had no rights. Had, yeah. My father wanted to give a statement about what it means to be an American, and he was not allowed to give it. But today you will read the statement in I full. I will read it so in full, and that's what I do on my book tour, finally giving my father voice, and it's chapter 24 in this book. Um, I'll tell you later about how I discovered it, but yes, no, um, the whole—there was so much—the question was, what does it mean to be an American? I mean, who's more American? Um, a committee chairman of the House Un-American Activities Committee who uh, voted against every civil rights bill for decades, voted for the poll tax, at one point was a, briefly a member of the Ku Klux Klan and had other dark moments in his past. Uh, drove a body from a lynching. Yeah, a lynching. Yeah, the famous lynching of Leo Frank. He was involved in that. Um, or... He's calling my father, who was the commander of an all-black unit in World War II and had fought for racial equality and economic justice, un-American. What, what is American? And, and what's, I feel like this book is so timely now, mm-hmm. um, not, not only for your own family story, but your, your dad, you waiting to write this and mm-hmm. when, your, when your dad had, had passed away, David, right. but also some of the terms, or even as we're talking here, it's... it's reminiscent of what's happening or not reminiscent, but there's connections it evokes, yeah, to what's happening echoes. now and who will be called patriotic and yes. unpatriotic and what's fake and what's real. I started this book in 2015 before Donald Trump emerged. Um, but history tends to come around again and echo. And so all of the central themes of this book are being played out in America today. Um, the use of fear as a political manipulative tool, um, the demonization of others, um, again, as a political tool, um, the questions of who's American, you know, uh, the Muslim ban, the uh, separation of families at the border. Yeah, who has a right to even come Who has come a right to America. come to this country, um, make America great again. All of that is representative of a very narrow and... Uh, uh, damaging perspective on what America should be. Thank you for writing this book. Um, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, um, more today with David Baroness, his book, A Good American Family, The Red Scare and My Father. David is in town for a reading at Nicola's Books, um, but we're taping the show May 20th, 2019. Um, we'll be right back. Over the sea, let's go, men. We're shoving right off, we're shoving right off again. Nobody knows where or when. We're shoving right off, we're shoving right off again. It
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm Tia Hetzel. Today, David Marinus is here in the studio. Um, thanks to the Liz for engineering. David, what was the song we just Shoving heard? right off. <laughs> um, my father in 1945 became the commander of an all-black unit in World War II, um, which is, you know, world, the military was still segregated then. Um Blacks were assigned generally to quartermaster units. This was a salvage and repair unit. The officers, because of American racism, were all white or almost uh, predominantly white. And they tended to be either southern racists because the military thought, well, they deal with blacks all the time, or northern radicals because the, the northern radicals took it, uh, wanted to have this job, whereas a lot of white officers thought it would be a dead end. So my father was in that ladder, was a northern radical, and he was assigned this black uh, company, and he trained them at Camp Lee, Virginia, um, and he, he wrote about 100 letters to my mother about that process of training those troops and then going across to Okinawa. Uh, letters that I only read when I started reading, uh, researching this book. You know, they'd they'd probably gone to 15 different moves in our lives, and my mother kept them. And once I started the book, I I asked my sister f- to send them to me, and I didn't even know what was in them. And it turned out to be exactly what filled the book because it shows my father's deep belief in racial justice. I mean, think of how complex that situation was, where you had young black men being asked to fight for democracy and liberty when they were second-class citizens in their own country and, and were segregated within the military. So he knew that he had to try to um, raise their spirits by showing that he would give them a fair shake and treat everybody uh, justly. And you see that happening as he's developing this unit. And he wrote one letter to my mother um, uh, describing the night that the last night the men were... Um, the, they brought up these these young black women from Richmond, and they had a party because they were about to leave uh, for the West Coast and then sail to Okinawa. And they had some brilliant singers in the group, and one was a guy named a private named Willie Reeves, and he led all of the songs, including Shoving Right Off, and my father <laughs> describes it. And I, and I love in the book, David, how you have at the, in the letter, your father says um, how all the, the young women were suddenly also aware that these young men were going to be, it was their last party here at the camp and that they were going to be heading, as you said, yes. west and then on. Um, and but then all the men got together and started singing and it would just became about everyone about, singing together yeah, yes. instead of the dancing even it was the show of Well unity. who knows what happened after well, that Right right <laughs> Well but that yeah. wasn't in the letter no, that you it wasn't included in the, letter, in the book Right <laughs> um, but yes and it was a, a moment that uh, my father loved to write about uh, and so and and you became a newspaper man much like it's in your blood like it was in your father Elliot A Well, I was the dumb kid in my family. My older siblings are scholars, and my little sister was a classical pianist. But yes, it's definitely in the blood. My my father's father was a printer on Coney Island. Um, My dad was a lifelong newspaper guy. My mother was a book editor, and so it. And my son is a writer. My daughter's a writer. I think my grandchildren will be writers. So it's somewhere deep in our blood. Yes. Oh, well, well. Thanks for being here to talk about a good American family, the Red Scare, and my father. Um, so, um, 
David, what, before we hear your father's, Mm. the letter that he wrote that he brought with him to room 740 in the Detroit Federal Building, um, I don't know, could we set it up by talking about the trial a little or or what? Yeah, let's talk about the trial and then I'll read the beginning of the book, which sets up the letter. Great. And we can hear your voice and how, because I want to talk about how you're writing the book later. Yeah. Um, So... About a month before the committee came to Detroit, there were some hearings in Washington from the Subversive Activities Control Board. And that's really where Berenice Baldwin, the informant, first came in from the cold. Uh, but she wasn't naming many names then, but she, she they knew she would be the star witness a, a month later in Detroit. Um, and the... The uh, committee included uh, Chairman John Stevens Wood of Georgia, the chairman. Um, The committee council was uh, a Virginian from the Shenandoah Valley, a a product of the bird machine, which was based on segregation forever. Um, One of the more interesting members of the committee was from Michigan, Charles E. Potter, um, a congressman who... Uh, fought heroically in World War II, lost both legs in the Colmar pocket, and came back like many young veterans, a Main Street Republican veteran running on a a patriotism sort of ticket and a staunch anti-communist. And he later changed his mind about a lot of that in a very interesting way. The Days of Shame was the book he wrote. In the 1960s, 10 years after... He had been involved with Joseph McCarthy because he got elected to the Senate and was on the subcommittee with McCarthy and saw all of the manip- manipulations of McCarthy's uh, anti-communist hysteria. And 10 years later, wrote a book called Days of Shame, uh, regretting many of the things that happened during that 1950s period. And as an aside, I can only wonder who's going to write that book 10 years from now. And will it take 10 years for some Republican to realize the shame of today? Um, but in any case, that was the committee. Um, they'd been in Hollywood uh, twice before, um, going after screenwriters in Hollywood. Um, they'd go around the country to ver- you know various regional uh, hearings <clears throat> where they already had the list of communists. They just wanted to publicize them, shame them, see if they would name more names, and um, just stir up the local populace. So that's what happened in Detroit. And my father... Uh, received the subpoena on February 29th, leap day. Um, he he was told to testif- come to room 740 on uh, March 12th. The night before, he uh, wrote a letter, a statement. And that, I'm going to read first sort of my description of that. I was not yet three years old and have no memory of anything that happened that day. It was March 12, 1952. My father, Elliot Marinus, sat at the witness table in room 740 of the Federal Building in Detroit, where he had been subpoenaed to testify before the House Committee on Un-American Activities. As the questioning neared the end, he asked whether he could read a statement. There were several points he wanted to make about his freedom as an American citizen, as an Army veteran who had commanded an all-black company during World War II, and as a newspaper man. John Stevens Wood of Georgia, chairman of the committee, rejected this request. We don't permit statements, Wood said. If you have one written there, we shall be glad to have it filed with the clerk. 
The chairman's denial was arbitrary. If a witness was compliant, named names, repented, and humbly sought absolution, then a statement might be allowed. But my father was not compliant. He challenged the committee's definition of what it meant to be American and invoked the Fifth Amendment in refusing to answer questions about his political activities. So his statement was submitted, unread, to the committee clerk and from there essentially buried and forgotten. No mention was made of it in newspaper accounts the next day, nor was it included as an addendum to the hearing transcript published by the U.S. government printing office months later. It was just one more document entombed in history, eventually stored in the vast collections of the National Archives in downtown Washington, the same vaulted building that holds original copies of the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, and the Bill of Rights, the foundation trinity of the American idea. By the time I looked at the committee's old files, 63 years had passed since the hearing. My father was dead, as were Chairman Wood and all the other players in that long-ago drama. But the moment came alive to me as soon as I opened a folder in Series 3, Box 32 of the UAC files and found the statement. Three pages, typed and dated. When I began reading the first page, it was not the writing that struck me, but the physical aspect of the words on the page, starting with the first letter of the first word of the first line, Statement of Elliot Marinus. That was the line though in the original, the capital S of statement jumped up a half space, as capital letters on manual typewriters sometimes did. And in typing his first name, it looked as though my father twice hit the neighboring R key instead of the T, and rather than Xing it out or starting over again, he'd just gone back and typed two Ts over the R's. The pages that followed were resonant with meaning. My father was trying to explain who he was, what he believed in, and the predicament in which he found himself. But it was the composition of that prosaic first line that hit me hardest, the imperfect S. That seems to be how life often works. The smallest gestures and details can assume the most significance. Now I could place myself in 1952, sitting there in Detroit, as my father composed his statement only days after being fired from his newspaper job in the wake of the subpoena and testimony of an FBI informant. I could see my dad at the typewriter, a place where I'd watched him so often in later years. Thank you, David. That, so what was it about the imperfect S that was so... It was just, it was human. Because human. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was like, for the first time, I, I sort of, it washed over me. Uh, I could put myself in my father's place. You know, for 60-some years, I had... It had been in the past. It was a shadow of our lives. I'd never really allowed myself to, th to think about what my father endured at that moment. And I saw that S, and I knew my father's hunt and peck typing. And, it, and I just, it was just, it, I felt it for the first time really deeply. And it's, it's something about our fathers, too. They're heroic to us. And in <laughs> some ways... Um, I don't know. There's there's probably a time in our lives where we think they're perfect. I think there's times where we understand that they're not. But right. this was one of those moments where as a as a man and and you've lost him at this point, at mm -hmm. least on on earth, what you know. My um, dad was far from perfect. I mean, he was a wonderful human being, but you know, he couldn't ha eat a meal without it all falling on his shirt. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> um, and, you know, he had other, uh, you know, little foibles that would drive my mother crazy. Um, but he was a, he was a brave, 
human being, a great newspaper person, and a good father. Um, and all of those other little thing, flaws are just make, made him more human. And, and the writing in this part, because um, I do want us to talk about the writing of this mm. book, like how, how you did it, because it does differ from the other books that um, not only with your work at the Washington Post, but the books that you've made an, a name for yourself with as well. Yeah, uh, it's like, by far the most personal book. I mean, I had to figure out, first of all, what the voice was, how I'd feel comfortable using I, um, which I tend not to do, although I've written smaller pieces using first person. But you chose not to include things like a lot of, like you could have written this more, uh, like including the story of you and Linda going to Spain to retrace your uncle's mm. um, time uh, right. during the Spanish Civil War, or you're meeting uh, Berenice's relatives. Well, those and, are in the book, but I don't make them uh, prominent. Prominent, you, you, no, because or uh, huge scenes, or more about. Because you, it's you not see, about me. Yeah, and so you bring you step. <laughs> My back. sensibility is there, but I wanted it to be a book of, of history and power and of of family and not of me imposing my sense. You know my. What it meant to me because I, you know, what it meant to me. I was two and a half years old. I mean, certainly, I learned a lot about why I am the way I am from this book, but that's not that's not the point I wanted to make. Um, there are enough books about dysfunctional people and, and all that. And um, I, I'm not disparaging that, but, but I wanted to go larger than that. And that's why I wrote it the way I did. And it does feel, so it, it feels important also for this time, um, not just as a, like we were talking about earlier, not just right. as a historical uh, revisit, but I wondered about the choice of the name then, because I know why it came to be, because uh, there was a, I think a committee member. Well, who it was, was Charles shocked, Potter. Who was, who was shocked yes. that some, someone from a good American family could right. be called before them. Yes. Charles Potter of Michigan in a speech said that he was shocked that, Anyone from a good American family could become a member of the Communist Party USA. Now, I talked to my, you know, and that became the title of the book because we had a good American family and are a good American family. My sister had an interesting thought about that, which was she thinks Potter was referring to the fact that the Cummins family um, and families like that were... Um, Protestant, waspy, sort of, as opposed to he maybe wouldn't be surprised if it were a black person or a Jew. Um, uh, who knows? But that's the way she interpreted, like a good American, like almost like Trump's vision of what a good American is. How could they become communist? And my, you know, my mother's family came out of Kansas, you know, Midwestern Methodist, and three members. She and two of her siblings were members of the Young Communist League. Um, so maybe that's what. It, but in any case, um, that's how the the title came: a good American family. And um, uh, it gets to a, to a larger point about you know what is a family, who decides what a good family is. Um, as well as a country and an American, and who decides that? Yeah, and and if a country is a family, yeah. Let's take a short break, and then we'll come back. Today on the program, David Marinus is here. Uh, the book, A Good American Family, The Red Scare, and My Father, out with Simon and Schuster. We've got the Liz behind the glass. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back.
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers today on the program. David Marinus is here. A good American family, the Red Scare and my father. So Jackie Robinson. Oh, my dad was a Dodgers fan, first of all, and very committed to racial justice. So he he and my mother were huge Jackie Robinson fans. And in, I think, 1947, Jackie's rookie year, they drove from Detroit down to Chicago to watch Jackie play. Um, And... um, you know, it's one of the, the deepest sort of uh, sensibilities of my family is, uh, well, first of all, a love of sports and a love of, of racial justice. And so Jackie is sort of a, a hero. And, and baseball, especially and baseball. in the family. Because totally. it seemed like when you moved, because in those five years where your family's <laughs> path was disrupted right. post room 740, um, uh, you would be in, I think, a couple of different cities uh, or five, maybe. Mm-hmm. Well, five years you were moving and you loved the Indians, the Cleveland Indians. Of course, the Tigers, too. Um, yeah, the Dodgers, the, Tigers, Indians. The Brewers, uh, was it? Or, uh, no, that was the Braves The Braves then, then. okay. And the Cubs. Um, so, yeah, my father and my Uncle Bob Cummins um, both were enormous baseball fans. And I think that baseball gave them a mental escape from the troubles they'd seen and uh, a certain joy that was apart from everything else. Um, so... Uh, baseball is just such a deep part of my family's uh, life. And, you know, there, there are several stories in the book about baseball. There, there was one point in the 1950s when the American Legion and a lot of uh, right-wing congressmen were trying to say that baseball was the American sport as opposed to, and so no communists could play it. Um, and I have this one section where I say, you know, uh, ideology has nothing to doesn't matter in baseball. You know, uh, hometown matters and nickname matters. Numbers matter. Um, the fact that it doesn't matter matters, <laughs> but uh, ideology does not matter. Uh, baseball transcends that. Yeah, can be it can be human. It can be a game. Right. It can be. Well, so so now let's let's so we've heard. The first part of how the book begins, mm-hmm. um, which which brings us to the moment of your your father um, uh, being called on March twelfth before the committee, nineteen fifty two. It's chapter twenty four, and it's called. I titled it "The Whole Pattern of a Life." Statement of Elliot Marinus. In the thirty four years of my life, in war and peace. I have been a loyal, law-abiding citizen of the United States. One week after this nation was attacked at Pearl Harbor in 1941, I enlisted as a private in the Army of the United States and served for more than four years, climaxed by the campaign in Okinawa. I was honorably discharged in January 1946 with the rank of captain. 
Upon my discharge, I returned to my job as a newspaper man with the Detroit Times. I'm a homeowner, taxpayer, and parent, father of two boys and a girl. I was taught as a child and in school that the highest responsibility of citizenship is to defend the principles of the U.S. Constitution and to do my part in securing for the American people the blessings of peace, economic well-being, and freedom. I have tried to do that to the very best of my ability. And for doing just that and nothing more, I have been summarily discharged from my job. I have been blacklisted in the newspaper business after 12 years in which my competence and objectivity have never once been questioned. I must sell my home, uproot my family, and upset the tranquility and security of my three small children in the happy, formative years of their childhood. But I would rather have my children miss a meal or two now than have them grow up in the gruesome, fear-ridden future for America projected by the members of the House Committee on Un-American Activities. I don't like to talk about these personal things, but my Americanism has been questioned, and to properly measure a man's Americanism, you must know the whole pattern of a life. I feel that nobody has the right to question my Americanism, least of all a committee which itself has been called subversive, un-American, and anti-labor by the CIO, of which I am a member, by President Roosevelt, and by responsible organizations representing many millions of Americans. I view this committee's attempt to muzzle me and drive me off my job as a direct attack on freedom of the press and the right of newspaper men to participate freely in the political life of the country without fear of reprisal. The U.S. Constitution and its Bill of Rights are not simply musty documents in a library. They have meaning only if they are used. To betray and subvert the Bill of Rights is the most un-American act any man or committee can do, for that document was brought into being and maintained throughout our history by men who gave their lives and their blood. Every newspaper man knows that history is not a printed page. It is the passion and striving, the struggling and endurance of men and women. These qualities that went into the making of our nation can be discarded only at great peril to ourselves and our children. From the time of Peter Zenger, the colonial printer who defied the British crown's effort to impose censorship in the American colonies, right down to the present, newspaper men have zealously defended the freedom of the press. For the First Amendment is not only a guarantee of free speech and a free press, it is also an indispensable part of self-government. That's what makes this committee so dangerous, ostensibly designed to protect the government against overthrow by force and violence, it proceeds by force, terror, and threats to overthrow the rights of the American people. A witness has no rights whatever. He is denied the elementary due processes of law. He has no opportunity to confront his accuser, to cross-examine witnesses, to call witnesses in his own behalf, or even to make a statement. The committee is so poisoned with bigotry and malice that it's hard to believe that it is indeed a committee of the Congress of the United States. It more resembles a session of the Spanish Inquisition or the witch-hunting trials in Salem in the late 17th century. If anyone believes this comparison far-fetched, read these words of Cotton Mather instructing the judges in the technique of extracting confessions from suspected witches. Now first a credible confession of the guilty wretches is one of the most hopeful ways at coming at them. I am far from urging the un-English method of torture. But whatever hath a tendency to put the witches into confusion 
is likely to bring them into confession. Here, cross and swift questions have their use. Under this technique, as Supreme Court Justice Black has observed, many confessed, some were burned, all were innocent. It was precisely to combat this technique, to rule it out forever from American life, that the Fifth Amendment was written into our Bill of Rights. This committee reflects no credit on American institutions or ideas. Its attempt to enforce conformity of political or economic thought is a long step toward dictatorship that holds the greatest danger to the entire American people. In this country, we have never acquiesced in the proposition that persons could be punished for their beliefs. Back in Jefferson's time, when the alien and sedition laws were passed, countless newspaper men and editors were indicted and many sent to jail for their fight together with Jefferson to restore the Bill of Rights. In their number, Matthew Lyon, John C. Ogden, David Brown, William Duane, James Thomas Callender, Jedediah Peck, Charles Holt, and Thomas Adams. These men never stopped fighting. They forced the repeal of the, of the repressive legislation and set the nation on the high road of its future development. I am supremely confident that the same spirit that motivated those men in the brave days of our past still lives in the American people. I am confident that the people of Detroit will reject this committee's effort to subvert the U.S. Constitution. I am confident that the American people will not allow our traditions and freedom to be transformed in the image of fascism, nor will allow our cities and millions of our people to be destroyed in the hellish fires of atomic war. Elliot Marinus. Being read for the first time by his son many, many decades later. Thank you, David. How so when you went to the National Archives, were you able to go and actually did they bring a box up to you? Can you tell us the moment? Of- yes. Um there was some wonderful archivists there and I was dealing with a woman a woman archivist named Kate Mullen and she she found the statement uh, and let me know about it and then I went to the archives and there were there was a, a whole box of, of many many files um, labeled um, hearings of the House on American Activities Committee communism in the Detroit area um, and within that box in one of the files it was Elliot Marinus and it included the subpoena the actual subpoena that was served on him um, FBI, a little bit of FBI accounts of how they'd been tailing him for a long time. I much later got his entire FBI file, hundreds of pages. But that, they had a little bit of it in that file that the that the UAC investigators used. And then this statement, there it was. Uh, you know, filed away and never seen until I came across it. And so it almost, did you have the sense that no one had read it? I don't think anyone ever read it, no, until now. And it's so, so beautifully written. My sense is like to have like a, your father, that was his way of being able to go there to this place. Like it was his way of coping and, and fighting back. Mm -hmm. It was. And, um, you know, I, I, I think it should be on the walls of, uh, of a newspaper or if not the Supreme Court, you know, I mean, um, my father was a very powerful writer, and it's a strong expression of freedom of speech and freedom of the press. 
and thinking about freedom of the press now when it seems like the the press again is is under attack and being questioned enemies of the people what yes. the heck <laughs> um you How know can even someone say that like because, it's, I mean, and it's almost normal for us to yeah it's true uh, it's because uh, trump is a master at, at, at turning things on their end um you know fake news i mean he's the one who's the, our my newspaper the washington post has found 10,000 lies he's told since he became president um so what what the press is is uh you know at its best enemies of of uh falsehood and evil and uh and uh and you know the attempt to expose the truth and find the truth that's what it's all about so um that makes people like Donald Trump very uncomfortable and finding the truth is something your your father and mother it seems instilled in in you and and your of uh, your your family um and you said finding the truth was what mattered to you like this story was something you'd wanted to write for a while but it was difficult there were difficult times well sure because and that's why I didn't write it while my father was alive here he's the one who taught me to go for the truth wherever you can find it um and i knew that there would be parts of his involvement with the Communist Party that would be uncomfortable. Um, well, I would shake my head and say, what were you thinking, Dad? You know, like the defense, a rationalization of the 1939 Nazi-Soviet pact um, and some other points along the way. Um, and so, but everybody, you know, the, I'm very interested in the context of why people think the way they do, why, how they react. Some people learn and grow, and some people just become more of what they were. My father definitely learned and grew, and um, and he's a he's a fallible human being. And so, you know, if I had just written a hagiography and avoided the difficult parts of that communist period, it would have been worthless, um, and and it wouldn't have shown the power of who he was and how he came through that as much as if I deal with the difficult points and go through it that way, which is what he would have wanted me to do, I know, in the end. Let's take a short break. Today on the program, David Marinus is here, A Good American Family, The Red Scare, and My Father. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. back. You've got living writers. If you're just tuning in, I'm so glad you did. Um, David Marinus is here today. Uh, a good American family, the red scare and my father, uh, David Marinus's 12th book. Um, and go out and get it. Uh, <laughs> 
it's important. I think I'm still, I mentioned this when, when we first, off air, when we first started talking, David, like I just finished reading um, on Sunday uh-huh. and, uh, and I'm still processing it because it's a, it's, it's a story about your father. Clearly it's in the title <laughs> and there's a beautiful picture of your family by the Statue of Liberty um, with, well, I know Wendy isn't in this picture, no. but um, she wasn't born she wasn't yet. Born. Yeah. She was coming along, but, yep. but this is a story about this, this country as well. Mm-hmm. And as we talked about earlier, the Spanish civil war, world war two, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a history about so, so much. Um, I know if you were to try to give equal billing to everything that the book really weighs in, in a balance, it would be a super long title. <laughs> but but I do, I feel like it's worth noting that this is a book that's, that's as much about memoir. the yeah. country. Yeah. yeah. There was a point where I had a different title for the book, which was Judgment in Room 740. Um, and... I ended up with this title because as I reached the end of the book, I realized that my family was the through title, was the through story of the whole book. And also, um, I wanted this picture on the cover because it's right after uh, my father was fired. We moved to Coney Island to live with, with, his, with folks. his folks. Yeah. And there we are at the Statue of Liberty. What could be a more <laughs> evocative cover than right. that family at the Statue of Liberty? And like genuinely going, like taking yeah. the family yeah, to on see. On the ferry to see yeah. it. Yeah. So for, for those reasons, uh, I came to this title and I'm very happy with it. But, but I also want people to understand that it's more than about my family. It's about, I use that hearing as a way to bring all of the different elements of American life into that room. You see it as like that moment as like a, there's spokes coming out of it, right? That's what I say at the beginning. Is that how you, is that when in the process of writing the book, how did you decide how it would Well, the structure was interesting because... I understood that I couldn't wait until the end of the book to get people into that room. It wouldn't have it, it would have it would have been too slow that way and and um, not fair to the reader. Um, so what I decided to do was develop an A B A B A B for the first twelve chapters, where one chapter's in the hearing room and one chapter is some is in someone's life. Um, and then from that point, after I got to chapter uh, 12, which by that point, um, you know that my father has been uh, called, is issued the subpoena. Uh, my uncle has already been called before the committee, as have several other people. Then I take it chronologically from there, because that by that point, you you know all the characters and you know what ha- what what's going on in that room. And so... From that point, I do a straight chronology through World War II, through the 1946 to 52 period, and then ending with the five years of the blacklisting. And when you were drafting this, is that part of the organic, how it was, how you were drafting it? Or is that a structure that you were able to impose? Because like, it's it's a lovely choreography of the ABABAB until Chapter 12. Um, you know, part of it... I. You know, you're a writer. I believe in a muse. I really do. I think that it just came to me. And I, you know, I do organize my books uh, and my material, but 
But then I wait for some magic to happen, and it just did. I just just, just sort of this makes sense. Let's do it this way. You yeah, know? and and hard work because yeah. this is it's a you know it took me. It's actually it's really quick to read, but it's a it's a lo- it's a hefty book. Um, so well, it's about the. I mean, I've written longer books and I've yes, written a few have. shorter yes, books, but <laughs> but I mean, but there's a lot there's a lot of things that go into this book, definitely. Um, but I, you know, I'm I'm basically incompetent in a lot of other things in life, but I love to write and research. I love every part of it. I don't get writer's block. The only times I do is if I haven't really done the research, and that's not very often. So, um, and the magic of figuring it out is really uh, a joy. And it sounds like from even talking this afternoon that some of the the magic is happening in those research moments too. Yes, when you were talking about the imperfect S. Well, that was for... that was magic. Um, going to Spain was was magic. Finding. Uh, certain things in his FBI file, uh, finding that Chairman Wood, uh, Wood's own wife, second wife, found out that he was part Cherokee and wouldn't sleep with him anymore. He was the chairman of the Un-American Activities Committee wasn't American enough for his, his wife. southern racist wife. Uh, you know, all these sort of moments that just uh, take on uh, an extra resonance um, when they all come together. What was it like seeing the the FBI file and and that was, making um, sense of it? And it was uh, I got it in two sections. The first I FOIA'd them, and the first one took about a year and a half to get. And then, the, and then there was one section in the first batch that was blank, and it just said military intelligence investigation, but it didn't have anything. And then a year later, I got the military intelligence investigation. My father was investigated while he was in the Army when he applied for officer candidate school because of his past at the University of Michigan. And they came back here and interviewed a lot of people. Oh, including professors, uh, right? Professors, landlords, (laughs) members of the Michigan Daily. Um, and and yeah. some things weren't very – actually, I think this part surprised me that some people said not so nice things about – One of them was uh, – which was the biggest shock of to me in the whole book was uh, Morton Mintz, who um, I worked with at the Washington Post. He was a great investigative reporter who three years after my father had the same job as the editorial director of the Michigan Daily – and when they came to interview him, he said, no, don't don't let this guy become an officer. You know, he's he's beholden to the Soviet Union. He won't he can't be trusted, blah, blah. And I knew Mort Mintz. I had been his editor for a while at The Washington Post. And it, he was a, a maverick, uh, anti-establishment uh, investigative journalist, you know. And so it shocked me. And I he was 95 years old, still alive when I got that. And I. At first, I wrote him a, an email because I was in Madison, Wisconsin. He was in Washington. I said, Mort, you know, I've got something difficult to talk to you about. And I attached his statement uh, to the FBI and said, but I know that you believe in searching for the truth and, and dealing with difficult questions. And he wrote back and said, it's the biggest shame of my life, basically. And then I went to see him, and we talked it over again. I didn't want him to feel that at age 95. And I I said, my father moved on. He's a forgiving person. Um, And And it it didn't stop him. No, it didn't stop him. He became an officer, and he succeeded wonderfully, yeah. And in a way, maybe it was good that you did 
talk about, take the truth to him so that mm. he had a chance to actually maybe reconcile it with you, to I face so. you. Yes. Maybe. Yeah. I, I hope so. I mean, I didn't want him to go to his grave, you know, feeling terrible about that moment a long time ago. Um, but, but one of the things I learned in, in researching and reading books about that period is that often the biggest sense of guilt carried for decades later was by, was by people who did name names. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes, you mentioned earlier, um, about your father came to Michigan and was radicalized here. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a supercharged word in a lot of ways. When you, when you say that, what, what do you mean? Well, he he had already at the at Abraham Lincoln High School in Coney Island. It was a progressive place, so he already had a, you know, his principal carried around uh, Emerson's essays in his back pocket, and uh, there was a peace movement in the high school. Um, but Michigan in the 1930s, coming out of the Great Depression and the failures of capitalism, uh, with Mussolini and Hitler on the rise in Europe, um, there was a lot of 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 uh, Activity and the labor movement in Detroit and Flint and uh, all of that rising. Uh, there was a lot of, a lot of things going on in the world that that turned many young people towards socialism and communism in that period. And that's what happened with my father and many others. In a way, it doesn't seem radical. It seems human and it seems <laughs> sensible. That's why I wanted oh, to ask I you see. about the it. Term, well, maybe radical is an imprecise term. Uh, I shouldn't, uh, but for the time it wasn't like, I think that's why you're using it. Um, David, I think, um, I I don't know why I was using it. I can't even explain that, but, but, but you're making a better point than I was about that. Um, but in any case, I, I view the, the 1934 to 1940 period, much like the sixties. You know, people came to Michigan and Wisconsin, where I was in that period, and and the world opened up to them in ways they hadn't seen before, um, and they became political. That's what I want for now, for <laughs> us. I I feel like there's a sense of maybe because of how things have been orchestrated with publicity or fear or something, but I feel like there's something that's. I, I don't well, I sound see, like an old person. I want for the young people, or I yeah, want for all of us, you young saw and old. Some of it with the Parkland students and their yes. organizing of the you know anti-gun uh, movement, and some in the women's march on Washington. There are there are moments of it. To sustain it is is difficult. And, and, and new members of Congress. Yeah, a very yeah. Twenty eighteen election, and we'll see what happens in the next year and a half. Thanks so much for coming by to talk, David. Thank you, T. Come back anytime. <laughs> Wait, what's next? Do you have? Are you working on it? I, I just started my next book, and it goes back to sports, but not really sports. It's a it's a full scale biography of Jim Thorpe, who was both a fabulous, the greatest athlete of the 20th century, and a Native American. And I'm going to use his story to write about the the American Indian experience uh, from 1880 to 1950, the sort of notion of kill the Indian, save the man, which was the government policy of that period, try to drum all the Indian out of them. So, and he's a terrific story, and I'm starting to research it. Well, I can't wait. Can't wait to read it. Um, (laughs) Thank you, David, for being on the program today. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks to the Liz for engineering. Um, Until next night. And I'm T. Hetzel. Oh, A Good American Family, The Red Scare and My Father by David Marinus. Can't forget that. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
Original air date November 19, 2015 at 12 p.m. noon. from Frank Paul, something called Epilogue from the Back of Beyond. Frank Paul, of course, performing at Carytown Concert House with, I guess, a seven-piece band. With Frank, you never quite know what you're going to get. It's different every time. Anyway, um, this is Reverend Andrew. You are listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, a broadcast service of the University of Michigan, run by students with help from the community, which is, of course, you and me. I'm going to start out with some Jack Kerouac.